0: Everyone, if you're uh, wondering why I'm greeting you instead of Anastasia, I might have broken. Her. You're probably wondering why. Maybe the reason will go out on social media, but let's just say that I am very, very prepared right now for the Sunshine Double, which is coming up very soon, and we're going to be explaining all of that to you on episode 11 of Ground Pass. <laughs> Anastasia, you all right? I
1: mean- I'm trying to recover. I'm trying to recover because while you're wearing sunglasses inside, like you're too cool for school, (laughs) but it's perfect. It is perfect to cover the Sunshine Double because it will be really sunny, fingers crossed, during the Sunshine Double, which is coming up soon. I can't believe it. I feel like where did the year go already? It's almost March and it's almost time for both tours to be back in the States for a very long time. Like when you think of the sunshine double, that's a full month, a full month of tennis. It's like a mega slam
0: in some ways. And uh, that's why I think the sunshine double is as highly regarded as it is because uh, you've got two packed drawers that not quite as big as a slam. It's 96 players in who get to enter instead of 128, but you still have to win six consecutive matches. Both if you're if you're a seed over a period of four weeks, that's quite a physical a physical achievement. Um, I know a slam slams yeah. can be tough because that's two weeks of tennis where you're playing every other day. But with this, it's four weeks of playing every other day in two different locations that are right challenging for different reasons.
1: Right, right. With two different climates, but I was thinking about this the other day because I was like, "Oh, this is a mega slam." And for all of for everyone listening, I know we just jumped right into this, but the Sunshine Double is the combination of Indian Wells and the Miami Open that happen in the month of March in the United States. And if you if you don't know, the Indian Wells tournament is sometimes called the fifth Slam um, colloquially. And I was just wondering, because Nick is always the history buff guy who knows all the numbers and all the history, but were both events always two weeks, or were they ever one week?:
0: about? No, So they only became two-week events in the mid-2000s, uh, especially e. for the women. Um, the women's okay. actually, you know they're both 1,000 events in the tour. but actually the women's Indian Wells tournament wasn't upgraded to a 1,000 level until 1996. Before that, it was a 500 level. Um, so I don't know if you can imagine Indian Wells being a 500 event, but there you go. And then they, but even then, that was still half the size of the draw of the men. Yeah, they both got updated, and it's interesting that now Indian Wells has been is called the fifth Slam because actually Miami was called that, especially for the for the WTA players back in the 90s um, before Indian ah. Wells got upgraded. So Miami's got the sort of legacy status, as it were. But also, they're both fairly recent compared to, additions compared to a lot of uh, the other tennis players. So Indian Wells wasn't really a tournament. Um, neither were really a tournament until the mid-80s, 85, um, 86, 87, that kind of period. And I think Indian Wells was always a Masters 1000 event whenever that, when, that's, when that was created, when the ATP Tour took over the running, completely took over the running of men's tennis in nineteen ninety. So, but obviously for the women, it's kind of been a bit more of a journey, uh, but yeah, comparatively, right. if you think about it, like the, the, the furthest back legends of the sport that you may have heard of, like Borg, McEnroe, if you have a longer memory, Rod Laver, they never actually played Indian Wells on Miami. It's something that really, because they're so new, began with your Boris Becker's, Martin and Avratilova's, those kind of players.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it so. I think what a lot of people might also know about these tournaments, especially Indian Wells, I'll say, because I think Indian Wells has had a lot of like storylines attached to it. And the two biggest ones I would say is, first, players seem to really, really love Indian Wells. Like it's called Tennis Paradise. And I've never been. Um, The photos I see look gorgeous because you just have these scenes of like, tennis courts and the backdrop or mountains and palm trees and stuff. Do you know why that is? I mean, hopefully one day we can, we can all go to Indian Wells and experience it in person. Is it just a pretty venue or do players love it for other reasons?
0: I don't know too much about the players, to be honest. Um, I think for a lot of reasons, the players would probably love it because of the, the reasons the players would love a tournament is the hospitality the tournament would provide. Um, if you've watched Dario Casakina's vlogs, that ends up being quite a key part of everything, and but also the crowds and what kind of atmosphere they get at these tournaments, and also I think the competition they get as well. So I think it's a combination of Indian Wells has uh, particularly has got the cash to kind of splash to make the players feel like stars, but also yeah, Indian Wells is tennis paradise not just for the tennis players but for the tennis fans who go, and it's a very fan oriented event um so um I think because of that the fans who go to Indian Wells are far more engaged very knowledgeable about the game um and there's a lot of things that help players connect to them and sort of win them over and I think that's another reason why the players might enjoy it Indian Wells is very much on my if I ever found the ability to pay for a flight to California and tickets. 100% One hundred percent would go. It looks incredible, and it's because of that reputation of being built as a tennis tournament. I think what's happened with the, the what with the Slams is interesting. Is that a lot of their status comes from their history, their longevity? Though like, they were the original events in many ways. I mean, there is some maybe one or two events that may be slightly older, than a couple of them. But be beyond that, um, they're the national championships, and they kind of probably feel like. A nation's celebration of tennis, but it's all about the the nation hosting it and also the history that goes with it. And maybe some of the kind of it's like an event. It's just an event, a a, a wider event than just a tennis event. Whereas Indian Wells is geared towards being a celebration of tennis at the highest level. It's, It's in a part of the world that, you know, it's another American tournament it's um a relatively modern one and so there's no there's a little bit of history hanging over it but it can market it itself as if you're a tennis fan this is the event to visit
1: definitely on my list of places to visit because all the pictures from it look good um if you follow Rafael Nadal on Instagram he has actually just arrived at Indian Wells and he's playing on this court and the mountains are in the background and the sun is setting and you're thinking wow this I would want to play tennis on that court um in that location. And I started doing research. So if you follow us on sh- social media, you know that I've been working on these sort of local tournament guides for our listeners um, and people who follow us on social media to sort of help people because I, it can be tough deciding when to go, what tickets to buy, how do you see your favorite players, etc.? So I've been working on, on um, the Indian Wells and Miami Open version of these um, events and just looking into the sort of activities for fans, the tickets, um, how practice courts and all of that. Indian Wells does seem very geared towards fans and people who love tennis and want to enjoy tennis. So I can imagine, you know, you saying, why does it, an athlete a tennis player love a specific tournament it's because they kind of get that sort of love and support from their fans and they have access to that too so it seems like a really exciting tournament it does have a little bit and i can't i don't think we can talk about indian wells without talking about the williams sisters who for a time didn't Um, I think if you just look up Indian Wells, it comes up. It's one of the first things that comes up. Um, But the Williams sisters didn't attend this event for a long time.
0: No, they didn't. And that was because of an incident in 2001 where um, they were supposed to play on the semifinals. Venus pulled out and uh, the crowd in the final were very against Serena because they believed the result was rigged. Um, And there were probably a lot of other motivations mixed in there as well. Um,
1: yeah, and, yep. which
0: it got very nasty, and so justifiably, Serena and Venus didn't play that tournament for nearly like for about fifteen years. I think they went back in twenty eighteen. Was that the year they finally agreed yeah. to come back? Yeah, um and ended up playing each yep. other in that tournament. um But yeah, for a long time, the women, the Williams sisters. Uh, didn't play. So obviously if you look at the the role of honor of people who've actually won the sunshine double, like obviously I think Serena's won Indian Wells and be sure she won that final, but people who've won the sunshine double, both tournaments back to back, neither of their names are on there.
1: Yeah. Cause they didn't attend Indian Wells for a long time. They're back now. I know Venus Williams is actually going to be in this tournament this year. Um, so it'll be exciting to watch her play um, at Indian Wells, but That kind of brings me to Miami, which I have attended. Miami is definitely a closer trip for me on the East Coast. Um, So I have been to the Miami Open. And it has a very interesting history. Like you said, it is the longest, um, it is the oldest of both. Um, It's been there before. But the sort of venue of where the Miami Open in Florida has changed. Yes. A couple of times. Right now, the structure they have is shared, I would say. It's really funny Um, for you. I know you, Nick, you're an F1 fan. Yeah. But what happens right after the Miami Open is the Miami Grand Prix at the exact same venue. So it's like they take down this temporary tennis court and put in a temporary you know, track.
0: <laughs> yes. Which, you know, you can it's almost like they take everything apart like instantly because they've got to put the next thing up. I think they've got a little bit more of a gap to play with this time. Cause I think Miami Grand Prix is not until the first week of May. Um, but mm. the, uh, but it's interesting you say that because so you're talking about the history, like, yeah, Miami used to be in Crandon park. I don't know Miami. Maybe some of our listeners are from Miami. They might know it, but now it's um, being, it's literally held on the site of the Miami dolphins. <laughs> Um, To the point where they build a tennis court in the middle of a football stadium, which from aerial shots looks bizarre. And it's clearly a very temporary structure when you look at it.
1: Yeah. And I have to say from attending it, it is very... It's interesting. So uh, the main stadium, it just seems so temporary because you're just, you're almost going through scaffolding and then you sort of pop up on these sort of temporary stands and all of a sudden you see a court. Um, The outside courts are a little bit more, I think they feel a little bit more like the U.S. Open if you have attended, but it definitely has a look to it, which I don't know that I love. It's also in terms of visiting Um, the tournament. Pretty difficult because it says the Miami Open, but it's closer to Fort Lauderdale in Florida than it is to Miami. So if you decide to stay in Miami, for example, to go to the Miami Open, you're going to be sitting in sort of two-hour traffic every day (laughs) trying to get to the courts. So it's a very fascinating tournament. I can't wait to make the video um, previewing the tournament and, and giving tips and tricks for visitors who want to go see see the tennis. Because I'm going again this year, for example, and I'm switching it up. Instead of staying in Miami, I'm actually going to stay in Fort Lauderdale, which is closer and you know more accessible to the court.
0: So top tip for people who want to get there, maybe spoilers for that video, uh, get up early.
1: Oh, really early. <laughs> I didn't know that the first time I went and I would sit in traffic for hours missing the tennis.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, going back to sort of why this is obviously, so this is a big deal because of the, the status of the tournaments, obviously being 1,000s, but also the, the kind of history behind it, the money that gets thrown at it, the size of the draws is what makes it particularly tricky because normally to win a 1,000, you're winning five matches if you're a seed, maybe six, whereas you definitely need to win at least six, maybe even seven if you're a lower seed. And and so that makes the the draw a little bit uh, is going to make that a little bit more challenging physically, as well as, um, you know, it's called Sunshine Double for a reason. You know, it's the sunny desert followed by the sunny beach in Florida. Okay, it's not that close to the beach in reality, but the uh, in Miami. But the that means you're going from something a bit more dry to a bit more humid. Uh, pretty much overnight, in addition to playing, probably like having the kind of ups and downs you'd expect from a slab.
1: Yeah. And based on last year's weather, you were going from somewhere dry and cold to somewhere hot, humid, and rainy. I mean, it couldn't have been more different um, climate wise. So it's really interesting because you've been saying the sunshine double now for a while. We have been. But It is kind of a thing to win the Sunshine Double. Not a lot of people have done it. Very few people have done it. And it's probably because of the different conditions. Like it's tough to go from, you know, dry, crisp weather to hot, sweaty, possibly rainy um, um, weather. Do you think that's the main reason why it's so hard to win the double? Or do you think it's also has to do with how physically fit you have to be to sort of play that much tennis in a month? It is both
0: because you're playing every other day for a month um, in different conditions and you have to get used to both. And traditionally, I think it's less extreme now they have changed locations in Miami, but it used to be, you were going from a slower court where the ball doesn't travel as fast after bouncing Compared to Miami, which is a bit quicker, and maybe her players who are a bit stronger on faster courts like Roger Federer and John Isner, and um, performing well there. I do have the list of people who've won the Sunshine Double, though. Um, it's eleven people, seven let's go, seven men, four women. Actually, yeah. Do you know what? How many can can you name Anastasia off the top of your head?
1: Ooh, okay. Top of my head, I know Iga has won it. Yes, she's she's the most she's recent the most winner. winner, most recent yeah. person to yeah. win it in twenty twenty two. Yes, um, Roger's done it.
0: Yes, he's done it three times. Um, who else has done it?
1: I really think that's all I know. One second, has Rafa done it? Rafa's
0: never won Miami. Rafa's never won no, Miami in his whole career. No. Um, which I didn't as a, as an Nadal fan, I wasn't sure if uh, you were aware of, but maybe uh, just no,
1: I had no idea. Blank that. <laughs> <laughs> been, yeah, exactly. It was just erased from my memory. Definitely <laughs> it doesn't a, exist. This tournament It's
0: definitely been more of a Roger <laughs> Novak Andy court than a Rafa court
1: Right, right. Okay, so I I can only guess two. Who are the others? Okay.
0: So the so of the men, Jim Courier was the first to do it in ninety-one, Michael Chang did it in ninety two, Pete Sampras did it in ninety-four, Marcello Rios did it in nineteen ninety-eight. Um the only person who's never won a slam to have Won the Sunshine Double. Uh, wow. Andre Agassi in 2001. And uh, Novak Djokovic did it four times in his career, including three years on the bounce, 14, 15, 16. Wow. Which is Novak for you. Only four women have done it. So said Eager's the most recent. Steffi Graf did it twice in 94 and 96, but 96 was the first year where there were both 1,000 level events. So the first time she did it was a 500 followed by a 1,000, slightly different. So... But she, she did it properly in 96. Um, Kim Kleister's in 2005. And then Victoria Azarenka did it in 2016, shortly before finding out she was pregnant.
1: Oh. It was short. like... I wonder if she was during. I
0: don't know if she was during, but I can't remember if she got injured and then got pregnant. But yeah, that, it, it doesn't really yeah. matter. But that was the last tournament she kind of yeah. played, more or less, before... Just um, take time off because uh, at the time, like she was coming back. But yeah, yeah, there's your sunshine double winners, so very prestigious players, all players probably renowned for being very physically top form. And actually, last year we did actually come close to two players. We did because two players made the finals last year. Um, Daniel Medvedev made the ATP finals, and Elena Rabakina made the WTA finals. But Rabakina won Indian Wells didn't win Miami, other way around for for Medvedev. So yeah, it
1: seems like it is definitely a large feat to win the Sunshine Double. Looking at the field this year, I think there's a lot of excitement coming into both tournaments this year because there's just a lot of players coming back. And I think the storylines coming out of, especially Indian Wells, because I don't know how many people will last through to Miami um, physically, you know, because of their physical issues or anything like that. But starting with Indian Wells, we have Novak. He's back playing, hasn't played.
0: Five years. It's five years since he last played in Indian Wells.
1: Which is crazy. I was thinking, I was like, wait, has it really been that long? And you think, yeah, because there was the times when he couldn't come to, he couldn't travel here. But even before that, he he wasn't he hadn't attended it so
0: no it was literally just because he couldn't travel it's the only reason did
1: he do it in did he do it in 19 yeah he played did in he 19 he played in 19 okay so he played 2019 and then couldn't come here yes and then that's why he he um hasn't done it but then we have Rafael Nadal coming back you know he ha- he hasn't played since Brisbane he was going to maybe come back for um the uh Middle East swing but he he decided to sort of take that time off and he's going to be back again for Indian Wells. We have Naomi Osaka playing. Um, who else is coming back? Oh, Venus got a wild card, so she's going to be playing. I'm really excited for this field of players that are coming in to to play Indian Wells.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it's, as we've said before, it's comparable with a slam because everyone's there. And, you know, Venus being there, Razor Stanks, Nadal being there lends a kind of a legendary status to it. Like this is the place to come visit. I'd have an opportunity to see these legends playing the sport, especially since we don't know when the last time will be. Yeah, Definitely for Venus, because she's keeping her cards much closer to her chest on the subject. Um, Rafa might be a bit clearer. Uh, yeah, that's, that's why. I think also one of the reasons why Indian Wells is so interesting is that both tours, like all the top players are going to be there. And both tours currently have a clear top four, Uh and really, it's a tournament that all of those players could win. There's not really—I don't think there's anyone who would struggle more so to win Indian Wells out of the WTA side, definitely not. And the men and the ATP side, again, definitely not. I mean, like even Daniil Medvedev, who complains about slower hard courts, is a former finalist here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've got. No reason to see why Yannick Sinner wouldn't do well. Djokovic and Alcaraz are former champions. Alcaraz is the defending champion, uh, so I think that's one of the reasons why this tournament is going to be so fascinating. Is we're going to be watching the progress of those kind of eight players.
1: Super excited for the Sunshine Double. It's it's kind of my you know tennis is kind of back in my neck of the woods, <laughs> kind of. So time zones are great for me, and um, these are some tournaments that I can visit locally. Um so I'm really excited to have um the sunshine double coming up quickly. It's crazy how how fast the year has gone and how much tennis we've has <laughs> been played already, but this brings us to what's been going on on tour over the last 2 weeks that we've been away and can I tell you a lot. A <laughs> lot has happened in
0: 2 weeks. I I have had some fantastic text exchanges with you on WhatsApp Anastasia <laughs> There's been a lot of very excited caps, all caps messages yes. about some
1: All caps messages, <laughs> yes, about a lot of players. But, you know, I think it's been easier for maybe you to follow on the WTA because they have just been basically two big events um, on the WTA side. Um, counting on the ATP side, there's been one, two, three, four, five, six events over the past two weeks. We haven't and even finished one of
0: them yet. All of them. As of recording. And
1: yes, one of them is still going, but Rio is still happening. But let's start with the WTA. We can maybe even bounce back and forth between events. Packed week. Exciting week, I think. Where Where do you want to start?
0: Well, we've been talking a lot about the Sunshine Double. And there's sort a of little challenge of going from one city to another, both two-week events but sort of geographically similar location, we've had that in mini form and a condensed form on the WTA because we've had Doha, which is a slower hard court. Again, when we talk about speed, we're talking about when the ball bounces. You know, does it slow down or speed up? Essentially, um, yeah. After what happens, and um, uh, so, which is so it's Doha's slower reaction. Dubai is quicker. One of our friends was covering the tournament. There and he told me the conditions in Dubai were like ice in terms of very low, very fast. Wow! Which is um, so you know there was a lot of adjustments to be made, especially since you know there were still fairly decent sized draws I needed to get through. You, you, a seed needs to win five or six matches uh, to to win the title, and that, and we kind of saw over the course of those two weeks, some players ran out of gas, including very well-established players and I'm thinking of Iga Sviontek and Elena Rabakina which I'm going to start with so they played the final in Doha and they played a first set tie break that was an hour and a half and was one of the best sets I've ever seen I loved it heart in the mouth as an Iga Sviontek fan but I couldn't fault how good the tennis was and what I really enjoyed was the forehand to forehand exchanges because Elena's forehand is a lot flatter than Shviontak's. Doesn't she doesn't put as much spin on it. it? Doesn't rotate as much. But Iga was coping with it really, really well. And so, like their two big weapons going head to head was just beautiful to watch for a set hour and a half. Iga was two breaks down, four one. Then Rabakana hits herself in the leg while serving.
1: I remember that drawing
0: blood. <laughs> the rule is you have to stop playing if blood is drawn. And she had to get it patched up. Eager got time to reset, broke back, broke again. Elena then broke to try and serve for the first set. Eager broke straight back. We went to a tie break and the tie break went back and forth. uh, And eventually Eager just about edged that tie break and then took control of the match from there. So the second set didn't quite live up to the first, but it was still pretty decent. And, And that kind of ended up affecting what happened in Dubai. Because what happened was we were kind of watching Dubai going, are they going to be able to do it? Like, Iga should be the favourite. I wasn't convinced because she doesn't necessarily always feel comfortable in those kind of conditions. And Iga got to the semis. She beat some tricky players. She beat um, Elina Svitolina, Jean Chin Then, unfortunately, she had this physical dip in the middle of her semi final with Anna Kalinskaya that put her in a position where she had to fight back and it was just too much. Kalinskaya was also playing really, really well. But we'll come back to her. So, was Rabakina got to the quarterfinals of Dubai and then pulled out with some kind of stomach illness? Is what the reason she's given. I do think fatigue must have played a role in that. And so, what we ended up with was the Dubai event being a lot crazier than the Doha event, where all the the Doha event was all the quarterfinalists were Grand Slam finalists had been to a Grand Slam final at least once in their careers. The the Dubai quarterfinals was a lot more about people making breakthroughs and it was quite interesting to see the the contrast between those two tournaments
1: which is my favorite kind of final semi-final I think that was basically my theme for these two weeks is was watching players make their breakthrough and I know for some tennis fans you know they just want to see Nadal win everything and Novak win everything and Carlos Alcaraz and Sinner and they just should win everything but that's not in my mind tennis and watching these players make breakthroughs in this tournament has been so exciting so exciting because it makes the game a little bit more lively and exciting and when your favorite, you know, a Sinner or an Alcaraz or whoever comes against these new players who are just on a run. That just even makes it a little bit... Yeah,
0: and that's (laughs) why I've been much closer to WTA tests in more recent years because you have had all these breakthrough stories and people having their moment in the sun a lot more often than on the ATP side because of what we had in recent times with the big three. I think there's there is a balance. Um I think, you know, that people would say, but it's more it gives you more interesting matches to have these kind of elite players made later on the tournament. And I would say, yeah, those are interesting, but there should be room for others. And you're also maybe discounting how good all these professionals are. The standard of professional tennis players yeah. has risen steadily over the years, and I think they are deserving of, of some kind of moment in the sun, which is what Jasmine Paolini had when she won Dubai, um, it, beating Anna Skyer in the final, neither of which had like been that deep in a big event before. Like They'd both reached the, the second week of a slam for the first time in Australia this year and played each other there. Um, Sky winning that match, but Paolini won the rematch in Quite spectacular style in that Karen Sky came in having beaten three top 10 players, know, Ostapenko, Coco Goff, and Igor Paulini Paolini had battled her way through some tough players as well. She'd beaten Layla, she'd beaten Hadad Meyer, she'd beaten Sakari, was due to play Rabakuna, right but Rabakuna pulled out. Um, and what happened was Karen Sky was the ascendancy for a lot of the match, but Paolini just wouldn't give up, worked her way back in and yeah, she kind of fought back and it was a really, really good match, which kind of defeats the point of you know, yeah. you you don't need the top four to play each other to have a good match. These two were p- ranked outside the top 20 and it was still a really decent quality battle. Uh, but And it, it was a shame one of them had to lose, really, because they both played so well. They both deserved the breakthrough. Um, Paolini's someone I've been following for a few years because um, she... Uh, had a very exciting match with Victoria Azarenka in the second round of the US Open in 2021. And that put her on the radar as, oh, she gives us exciting matches. Let's see if she can put it all together. And aged 28, she's now managed to put it all together.
1: And Paulini, you know, I think her theme a little bit in this tournament has been like the sort of the comeback queen. Um, her first round match against uh, Beatrice Maya was just, you know four six six four six love um she won the last two sets um but she she has this fighting spirit and I mean she must be 5'5". or 5'4. Yeah, she she's a very small player she's a very small player so you see her and it was especially evident with the uh, b- at the Beatrice Haddad-Meyer match because Beatrice is like six foot tall and you see this small pint-sized just ball of energy who refuses to stop and hits the ball so hard. And there is an energy to her that is very similar to me with Layla Fernandez, who yes. she apparently, she actually did beat in this tournament in the next round, but they they have very similar just energy. You know, I think Layla doesn't hit as hard and, and she would, you know, I think maybe that's what Layla needs a little bit is sort of to beef up her, her ground strokes, but I love her energy. I love her fighting spirit. And it's really been nice to see, I think, last year. um, I think it was during the clay court season, either right after the French Open or just before she got to the final of... Oh, what tournament was that? It was the one just before the Transylvania Open. Monastir,
0: I think. Lost to the
1: Monastir, yes. Yes. And that was the first time she kind of came on my radar. I was like, oh, who is this? And making it all the way to the finals. She didn't win... And I think she she went deep um, in the Transylvanian Open too, but didn't win. And it's just nice to see her finally make that breakthrough and win a 1,000 event, you know. Because she
0: has won 250 in her career already.
1: Yes. Yes, she has. Yeah.
0: Whereas Callan Sky, this was her first t- final of her career. What well, way to do it? 26 years old, has been battling injuries and other stuff, her career. Uh, but this year in 2024, she's been showing... Uh, a lot of potential like she was losing to good players in good matches every single tournament yeah. so um, they're both now going to be seeded for Indian wells um it's highly likely they're going to both be seeded for the next two majors at roland garros and wimbledon uh paolini's now top 20 so uh, it, i i think uh it, it was nice it was nice to see uh sort of both yeah, both of them's doing well, but um, it was it was hard to kind yeah. of pick a winner
1: <laughs> because they both have very similar, I think, not stories or trajectories, but they both have this thing where they've been working hard to get to where they've been. And this was sort of the reward for all the hard work they've been doing. I mean, Anna Kaneskaya came on my radar, not because of her playing, actually, but because of her coach, who she happens to have one of the few female coaches out there on in tennis in general. So um, I was reading a lot of articles on Patricia Tarabini, who's her coach. Um, she used to be a player as well. It's just, I love Coaching player relationships and seeing how those work because I think sometimes um, we tend to think I, it's it's very interesting because in other sports, for example, that I watch football, um, basketball, the coach has more of an, a more of a, a sort of status or more of a personality on a team. You know, people think, oh, who's the coach, and that can affect how a team plays. And I think in tennis, it's really easy to forget because you do have an individual player hitting the ball and. That's, you know, what people see, but people tend to not see the sort of work behind the scenes, the strategies. We're starting to see that now that coaching is allowed and you can sort of hear what these coaches are telling their players and things like that. So I love seeing coaching player relationships. And it seems like Anakinskaya has a really good one. And it's great to see the results of that come to fruition. Um, There are two other players, though, before we move off to the ATP that I kind of want to talk about because... Although, I mean, they both got to the quarterfinals, and that's Caroline Pliskova and Naomi Osaka in Doha. So, the tournament before Dubai, I think they had, I don't know, they had good runs because Pliskova was coming from winning a tournament yeah. at the Transylvania Open. I can't remember the timeline, but she basically flew to Doha and played tennis yeah.
0: right away. The, the, it, Pliskova's run was ridiculous. So, little bit of background for those who may be a bit newer. Caroline Plushkovic is a former world number one, has never won a Grand Slam, but she's been in two finals um, and went three sets in both those finals. She, in recent years, has had a little bit of a slump to the point where she, she was kind of at the, in danger of dropping out the top 40, uh, went to Cluj in Romania to... You know, play the 250. There wasn't even seeded for a 250. Wins the tournament, gets on the plane to Doha in Qatar. So Google it. Those countries are nowhere near each other.
1: Nope, they're not.
0: And as soon as she landed, she had to play her first match because Doha started the day of her final in Romania. So she had to get over. She was on the second day, and she battled her way through. Can I say because? She went three sets in almost every match. Um, She literally played under Noshkova. Noshkova was serving for the set the match at 5-4 in the second set. She was a set and 5-4 up with a break, and Plushkova breaks back and barely drops a game. She only dropped it like a game or two after that. That's one example. But, like, she, she ended up in battles, and, like, every match she was playing, I was like, sure she's going to run out of gas. Sure she's going to run out of gas. And then she plays Sarka, former Grand Slam champion in the quarters, wins 7-6, 7-6, and then pulls out of her semi-final against Shion Tech with back injury. I think she was probably just physically yeah. spent by that point. Yeah. Uh, given that, you know, we say she flew over. She played eight matches in eight days. You don't even do that at a slam. You don't even do that during the Sunshine no. Double. Uh, and so to, that physical effort to get there is doing that. And actually, you know, as we're talking about this, it it's dawned on me that maybe our sort of expectations of what players can achieve Maybe they should, shouldn't be pushed this hard, but they are able to play day after day after day for a couple of solid weeks if they really needed to. Because we were asking the same sort of questions of Elena Rabakina, who won Abu Dhabi, then played Doha, got to the final, lost a tough match with Fiontech and then still made the quarters in Dubai. And we were always asking when she going to stop. When surely that's enough. Surely that's enough. And she just keeps winning. Uh, so huge kudos to those players for doing it. But yeah, Plushkova was the one of these stories of Doha. And by the way, she also got to the last sixteen of Dubai and lost to Coco Gauff in a tough match.
1: Yeah. No. You're. I, I love that perspective you just gave because we do tend to be like, oh well, why don't they just win everything? And you're like, well, you try playing tennis <laughs> for eight days in a row. In two different continents, you know, so it's really. I always say tennis players, you know, they. It's sort of an endurance sport mm. as well. It's an endurance sport in a way, and um, they have to do a lot to sort of stay fit and and win tournaments. And it, it is really great it's- to see what they can do. Um, it was really nice to see Naomi Osaka back in the quarterfinals. Um, I think she's finally getting a hang of it. I think a lot of people were upset that she she pulled out of dubai after getting to the quarterfinals in in doha but again i think this is part of the sort of like our expectations of what tennis players can or should do need to be based in some sort of reality because she just had a baby like a baby a child she gave birth to a child and is back on a tennis court like nothing happened To get to the quarterfinals so quickly, um, I think is pretty impressive. And we're going to see her back um, at Indian Wells. And I think she got the matches she needed to prepare. And we'll see where she gets to um, in Indian Wells. Because again, you know, she's coming back. People are expecting her to win everything. And you're thinking, well, but the tour, you know, I actually think it would be weird if Naomi Osaka came back from giving birth and just won everything right away. Because you're thinking, well, but the tour's been going and there are other players who are also building and growing. And, you know, I don't think it would be sort of a good look if she just came back and was like, oh, winning everything. Um, It's nice to see there's still a bit of competition. I would
0: also say with Naomi, with Naomi, she's never done that. She's never dominated week after week after week. Naomi's a unbeatable player when she peaks but the peak doesn't happen very often but she's very good at making it happen when it matters when everyone's watching which is on the heart which is at slams usually the u.s and Australia yeah. opens and so that's what you've got to bear in mind like here's a stat whenever naomi Osaka has gotten past the fourth round of a slam she's won it Wow, and she's only ever lost one fourth round Grand Slam match, so she's four and one in Grand Slam matches, four zero in quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals at slams, and that's what you got to bear in mind. But if you look at the rest of her career, she's only won two one thousand events: Indian Wells in twenty eighteen, Beijing twenty nineteen. She she has a game that's that is quite streaky, but it, when she schedules it right, she's she's unbeatable. So. Um, yeah, maybe we, we will. I think what we look at with Naomi is what the tennis that we know she can produce, um, but maybe with slightly rose tinted spectacles on how often she produces it.
1: Just so this podcast is not three hours long because <laughs> we we still have six <laughs> events to cover um, on the ATP side. Quick fire, Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Yes, there were six events over the last two weeks um, on the ATP tour. The Argentinian Open was won by Facundo Diaz Acosta. And this was kind of the beginning, I think, of the sort of breakthroughs. He started it during the um, Argentinian Open. And I think he sort of, the floodgates opened. And, you know, I think there is a thing to other players seeing someone do well that kind of gives them the sort of, well, I could do that mentality. And Facundo Diaz was was not someone anyone was thinking was going to win Buenos Aires. Um, in the field was former finalists and the winner, Carlos Alcaraz, Cam Nori, Nicolas Jari. There were big names in this tournament. And Um, For him to come through and be the winner is was was great, especially as he is from Argentina to winning at home um, during the Golden Swing was exciting, I think, for the for the area and for tennis in South America. I think one of the big stories that will come out of the Golden Swing is Carlos Alcaraz. Um, He lost in the semis to Nicolas Jari. Who I think is a player that he's always had issues with. If um, they had a very interesting match at, um, in uh, not Indian Wells, um, at um, Wimbledon, right?
0: Yes, yeah, in Wimbledon, Jarry took a set off him at Wimbledon. Just to be clear, when we say issues with, we mean only on the court, not off it.
1: Oh, only on the court. <laughs> we only talk about tennis on court. <laughs> they act. There is actually the cutest video. If you can, if I find it online, I'll post it. Of. Um, Carlos playing, like, sort of ground tennis with Nicholas Jari's son, and it's so cute. Uh, They're just, like, hitting a ball back and forth with um, tennis rackets on the floor. Um, It's really cute. I'll find it and, and leave a link to it. But, you know, I think the sort of player, Jari, you know, super tall, really big serve, really heavy ground stroke, so I think that is the sort of player who... Can affect Carlos Alcaraz. And I think, you know, Carlos is at this. I I didn't realize, I think, how popular he was until, you know, jumping ahead. He had a little bit of a fall in his first match at um, the Rio Open and couldn't play. But he's still there, and he attended, as a guest, as just someone in the audience, the Rio semifinals. And, you know, he was there with David Ferrer, and they had an announcement, and he stood up, and there was applause. And I was like, what is this? Is this like, is he, is it not Roger Federer? (laughs) You know, he's not Roger Federer at Wimbledon, but that's exactly what it looked like. And I thought, oh, wow, he's like a star star at this point in his career, which is so crazy, because I think I still see him as someone who just... Popped up on the scene, but no, I think a lot of people are sort of like, "Oh, he didn't win, you know, the Golden Swing, and is he ever going to win again? Is he done?" And I'm thinking we need to be able to give players a little bit more grace because I think just from our conversation on the WTA side, it's it takes a lot to win all these tournaments and um, be consistent all the time, and it's okay to have slumps. I think um, I can't remember what. I, I Maybe it was Robbie Koning or a commentator somewhere, you know, pointed back to, you know, when the big three were 20, they weren't winning everything all of the time. You know, they built up to that status where they, you know, were multiple slam winners. Unless right you're Nadal on Clay. So I think unless you're Nadal on Clay, which then, you know, you're just going to win 14 French Opens on the first try. <laughs> I think a lot of people love to compare and yes, he has built up this rivalry with Sinner and which brings me to the Rotterdam open, which Sinner recent winner of the Australian open just was like, sure I could do it again.
0: (laughs) He kind of cruised that one, didn't he? He cruised that. I
1: mean, he just, he just cruised to the final. Like it was nothing. He was just ah tennis I I live for tennis. I'm great at it. And that was, that. I mean, that's the sort of dominance I think people love to see. I also think there was a stat, oh, I can't remember now, but a lot of players after winning their first Grand Slam, they sort of crash out of their next tournament. They're, you know, they're done in, it's, he's the first one to do it in a very long time where he went from winning a Grand Slam to winning his very next tournament. Um, it was, really, a really great performance. He played Alex de Menor in the final, really great final. Unfortunately, you know, he now has a 7-0 head-to-head lead on Alex de Menor. I don't know Alex de Menor, what he can do to sort of fix this, but he did give him a run for his money. And, you know, unfortunately you're thinking, well, if that was the best that de Menor could play, is he just never going to to flip this head-to-head. But then again, I could say that about Sinner and Medvedev before Sinner flipped that head-to-head. Hopefully next time they, they meet, it'll be even more competitive and, and maybe Alex will get on top. But Alex de Menor is now in the top 10, um, by getting to the finals of of Rotterdam, and I think he's a player deserving of that. I think he's been showing signs since he played Next Gen that he could get to that level, and it's really nice to to see Alex um, in the top ten. So I think I hit Rotterdam, Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires. Del Rey, Taylor Fritz, yeah. won Del Rey again, which was, you know, really good defense of his title. I think that put him actually back into the top 10 because he fell out for a little bit, for a few days, I think.
0: He he would have dropped out if he hadn't defended the title.
1: Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in the live ranking, he was like out. Yeah.
0: Due to results this week, I think he is now definitely dropping out. The
1: top 10 is changing.
0: The top 10 is changing. So I think I've got it. I'm looking it up because... um. Yeah, stuff that was happening in uh, Los Cabos in Mexico this week. So we've now knocked off all week one. We're now into week two. So Los Cabos just happened where Jordan Thompson beat Casper Rude in the final. Rude could have got back in the top ten if he'd won the title, but Thompson has kind of having a sort of a an autumn summer as it, um, sort of but in whatever you want to call it, that's the autumn. So what the heck am I talking about? Um,
1: <laughs> what, is, what is an autumn?
0: He's 29 as well. So he's not even that late stage career, but he's finally won an ATP title after years and years of trying a bit like sort of Paulini yeah. WTA tour that we're talking about. Um, 250 not a
1: Just to do a little bit on Jordan Thompson, you know, cause I think people are like, Oh my God, he won. But all year, He's been really hitting it. He, he was in one semifinal, two quarterfinals, and he beat Nadal at Brisbane. So he's been sort of itching and, and scratching at the door and he finally made it. And just on this specific title at Los Cabos, he won the finals against Kaspar Ruud. He then went on to play semis with Max Purcell right after his finals match and won that against Casper Ruud and his teammate. And then he played the final doubles all in the same night and won the doubles oh, championship. My word. If you did not believe that the ATP was scripted, I think this is your proof. I, I think this, this is, is uh, the proof that
0: it is scripted. That is the best <laughs> night any tennis player could possibly have. To th- win three matches back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back, on the same court in one night is mental. That man's going to be exhausted. Yep, yep. He deserves... All the margaritas, um, and all uh, of them. Uh, Which
1: I think he's in the Acapulco draw, but let's I, let's get there. I'm not sure. I if mean, he it's is. A 500.
0: This big point number, I, but he like he just played a. I mean, he just played the equivalent, probably, of a long five setter. Um, let's face yeah. it. Um, by the way, I was completely wrong. Fritz is holding on to the top ten by his fingernails. He is 30 points ahead of Rude.
1: Ah, uh, okay. So Rude is eleven.
0: Yes, and then you have got city Pass, Okay, not far behind. Actually, Sixty Pass is seventy points behind. Which they sound like a lot, maybe to newer listeners, but for you, you get seventy points for reaching the second round of a Slam, second or third round. And you get ninety points for winning third, raking third round of a Slam. So you know, yeah, couple of decent, couple of decent wins for uh, your opponents, and you're going to drop back.
1: Before we go on to talk to talk about Rio, which um, the final will be happening later this afternoon, um, just a little bit about the top ten because it's been in the conversations, you know, all week. No more one-handed backhands in the top ten for the first time ever um, because Sitsipas is out and Grigor didn't make it in. I don't know what your feelings about this are. I don't really have any strong feelings. I love a good one-handed backhand. I think it's really pretty to watch. Um, but whether or not it kind of leaves tennis as a, a sort of a style of a ground stroke, I don't really. I don't know. I, I I don't have any sort of strong feelings on on if it goes. Roger Federer will always be my my only, <laughs> my, my one and only um, one-handed backhand guy. Yeah,
0: I, I think it depends on your age because I think there's a certain level mm. of... If you've been watching tennis for, for decades, you expect tennis to be played with one hand. Um, the double-hander is a relatively recent evolution um, of the game. It, like, very few people played with two hands 50, 60 years ago. Uh, Bjorn Borg was the one who kind of made a two-hander work. Um, and everyone went, oh, okay, maybe we should start doing that. Um and, you know, even Roger Federer said recently, like, if he was coaching his kids, he would teach them to play with two on the backhand. Um, it creates a little bit more stability, a bit more strength to the shot. Um, it makes sense. Do I think tennis is more interesting with more variety in how the game is played? Yes. But let's face it, there's not even any one-handed backhands in the women's top 10 anymore. We've only got one, maybe two, and right. 100. Um now, it's already happened in the women's game long, long time ago. So, yeah, um, it, it was inevitable. Um, I think tennis is more interesting if you have a mix. But uh, I'm similar to you. I'm not necessarily going to be super emotional about it.
1: Okay, well, we have two more tournaments to cover, which I think kind of brought the all caps conversation yeah. on WhatsApp
0: um, this week. I think the theme, the theme here is very much... It's not necessarily about who won these tournaments. It's about who made a name for themselves in these tournaments. One of these was Rio, and the other one was in the men's event in Doha. So you're going to start hearing the word Doha again a lot, but this time we're talking about the ATP. Although unlike the WTA, it's 250, not a 1,000.
1: Yes. They have, and I wonder if they'll ever become sort of like the Sunshine Double, where they They become mixed events. But in Doha, we had Karen Hatchinoff was the winner of the tournament. And I think he had a pretty, you know, normal run to the final. Um, Nothing crazy. I think Karen, it was a good win for him. I think it's a sixth trophy that he's won. I think the, the, the cute thing about it is, so there's this thing where, you know, Karen Hatchinoff Uh, Andre Rublev and Daniel Medvedev are all friends and they've, there's some tournaments and that they've all won. And this is now the third one that they all have trophies from the same tournament. It's cute. But the story I think of, of Doha, not I think, I know, was, um, Yakub Mensik, who our friend Damien Kuss, who is a journalist who covers the Challenger Tour, first introduced me to last year. He couldn't stop talking about him. I was like, who is this player? Who's this Czech player? I don't know who he is. He was a teenager at the time. Still is. Um, And then I realized, huh? He still is. He still is a teenager. Um, He's 18 now. And I remember he was, he was playing Taylor Fritz at the U.S. Open. And I thought, oh, this is the player Damien's always talking about. I should watch his match. And, It was good, but Taylor Flitz totally blessed him off the court. I think he was also tired. He had a pretty good run at the US Open for for a young, new player. Um, But it was nice to see him in person. And then watching him this week in Doha was just. I love when a player breaks through, when they just find their mojo or find their tennis and they really make great, great runs. And it started. Unfortunately, with him beating Andy Murray. I think it
0: started before that because he beat Alessandro Davidovich Fakina. Well,
1: he did. He did beat, you know, Fakina before. Um, But I think I started watching it at the Murray match, obviously, because I love Andy Murray. I want the best for him. He had just won his very first match of 2024. And I was like, this is it. We're going to go on a run. (laughs) And Mensik said, no, Mensik said, no, I'm 18 and I'm move going over, to try old and man. This tournament and move over Andy Murray.
0: Which he did later on the tournament when he beat Gal Monfils as well. Yes,
1: <laughs> which he did that. So he did it twice in one tournament. Um, but he so he beat Andy Murray. He beat Gal Monfils. He beat um, Andre Rublev.
0: Yes, that was the big win. That was the one that made people sit up and take notice.
1: Yeah, he he sort of notched his first top five win at this tournament. And um, again, it was just great to follow. He had so much energy on court. He has a really great style. Again, you know, he, I think, and this is sort of his inexperience and his youth watching him in the final, like in that first set, you could just tell every point was a lot. And he he held it. It went to a tie break. Um, the first set went to a tie break and um, it was a long tie break too, but I think he was just gassed by the end, by the final. And I think that's something he'll work on and get a little bit more fit, but I'm excited to to have another Czech male player because there are tons of Czech female players. There are tons; they they just they fall out of the woodwork. But we have very few Czech male players, and now he's one of them.
0: He is, and uh, I mean, it's not like the Czech males don't have a history, but you're you're right; um, the they do. They, the country just tend to produce a lot more strong female players. So we'll see. We'll see how Menschik does. I mean, given this result, it's looking very, very good for Menschik. Uh, yeah and uh, you know those they were all good wins as well. I mean like that first set tiebreak against Hutchinoff could have gone either way, uh, and maybe if he'd won it, it would have, the final could have gone in a very different direction. but I think he 's a name that you're probably going to be hearing a lot more of um on this podcast. Another name you 're probably going to be hearing a lot more of on this podcast is an even younger player, a seventeen year old Brazilian who made the quarterfinals of Rio his name. Jao Fonseca.
1: Jao Fonseca. How did we first hear about Jao Fonseca? First of all, he won the US Open Junior Championships last year. And he is represented by ON. So I actually saw him the very first time was because he was represented by ON. And they had an event pre-US Open with IGA, with Ben Shelton, and then this kid. And I was like, who's that kid? And they're like, oh, he's playing in the junior tournament. So I was like, I thought that was great. Cause I was like, wow, they're, they're actually, they pick two sort of established players in the um, main tour and then a junior. And I thought that was really nice of on, but I didn't really know anything of him. And then he goes to win the junior tournament on the boys side. And I thought that was great. Great for on great for this kid. Um, But I tend to sort of take juniors, especially Junior Slam winners, with a grain of salt because we don't really tend to see them come back. I mean, some of them do, obviously. Obviously, you know, we have um, Junior Slam winners who are playing on the main tour. But sometimes they just seem to fade into, into nothingness. And you're like, oh, whatever happened to that kid? And there was conversations about him going to college. I think he is actually, um, he's said he's going to specific college. I can't remember which one it is now, but they're still going to sort of leave that to the last minute to make the final decision on if he goes or not. But the second time he came into sort of my zeitgeist and, you know, my view was at the world tour finals because he was picked to be a hitting partner. To all the 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 eight players who were playing at the tournament, and all I kept hearing on social media was, Fonseca beat this person at a practice set. Fonseca beat that person at a practice set. Oh my goodness, Fonseca is hitting so well at the practice set. I'm like. Ugh. What's happening? Who's this kid? Should we put him in the tournament? Should we put him in the tournament? It kind of reminded me of when Runa was the kid who was at the practice. And they were like, who's this kid who's at the World Tour final practicing with the big guys? And then that was it until the Rio Open where he made a splash. And I think this is what I love too about the golden swing, because you do get a lot of Latin American players playing at home. You know, this is their home tournament and he's from Brazil playing in Rio. And I mean, all of his matches, I'm watching them from home and I can hear the scream. You could feel the screaming crowds supporting him and in like edging him on. And his first round match was against Arthur Fees. I love Arthur Fees, but this was a beatdown. This was I've never seen anything like it. I think I don't know. I think Arthur Fees did not know what to do. It was one of those the score was 6-love six 6-4. Six so Arthur Fees in the second set kind of woke up a little bit, but it, he he came out like Fonseca came out like a rocket and didn't really stop until he got to um until he got to the quarters. It was a sight to see and I could not type his name more in more all caps than than I already have over this past week.
0: Yeah, I I haven't seen the matches that has played because wrong time you have zone. To. Wrong time zone. Um Yeah. I'm, tough
1: time zone for you, yeah, really tough, actually.
0: Yeah, where they where they schedule match. Like, I could have watched it, but like, it just wasn't it wasn't especially since they put his matches on quite late. Um, and yeah. so I've seen highlights. The highlights I've seen, he strikes the ball monstrously. Um, I, I'm not surprised he could keep up with the top guys in Turin. Um, maybe they should have just flown him out to Jeddah. Um, but the uh, t-
1: I feel like they should
0: have uh, given how that <laughs> tournament went. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I, and so, you know, it's, it's promising signs. The guy who beat him, the is actually playing in the, um, in the final in Rio against
1: Sebastian Valles
0: final. all Argentine final. But yeah, Fonseca, Fonseca, Fonseca is, he's the name's going to get picked. And now he's going to, those two sick and Fonseca are going to be in the same category as Feast who obviously is still also a teenager, who when they're put in a draw, everyone's going to wonder how they do. Everyone's going to be looking to see how they perform.
1: If you do watch any match, you should watch his qualifying match with uh Navon. Uh, Navano. Really bad at pronouncing. You should, but you should watch his qualifying ma- Yeah, you should watch his qualifying match because he was very much like Mensik. He was done physically. He was cramping. He was, ju- I mean, he was really done physically. He won the first set 6-2 and then lost the last two sets 6-3, 6-3, But that was because he could barely move. But some of the points he was able to sort of get out of his body in those last two sets while cramping was very impressive for a kid of his age. He's 17. So you're thinking, oh, if he can do that at 17, what is he going to do when he builds physically and he he has the endurance to keep up in the matches? And another thing is I think Mensik is now in the top 100 with his run in Doha. He was able to get into the top 100. Fonseca is, I mean, he, he I think he went up tons. He started the tournament, I think in the 600s and now is in the 300s of the world. He just got a wild card into um, the next tournament, which is in Chile. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see. My my main thing right now is watching to see what he does. Does he go to college and pull a Ben Shelton where he finishes college? He has a great college career. And then he comes out when he's sort of 21, 22 and sort of, you know, takes over on tour. Or does he pull a Mickelson, who's someone else that kind of made waves a little bit early in the week in um, Del Rey. And does he not go to college? does he decide at 17 to go on tour? And
0: that depends on how quickly he performs. Like if he's 100, top 100 level already and he's willing to do the school of tennis life instead of actual school, and, and he, he can be successful doing that, um, why not? If, on the other hand, it's a no, this is still going to be a steady progress, so let's get a college degree. Well, he can. It's going to be a lot easier to do it at your age. Um, and then come in and sort of once you've matured a bit and do the Shelton route. Um, so I think it's going to literally come down to, is he going to, uh, you know, what, what his results going to be kind of, uh, in in, week out on the tour. Um, if he plays, you know, um, I remember when, when Eager won her first slam at Roland Garros 2020, and she was talking about, oh yeah, um, we're going to do this tennis thing for a couple of years, see if it works out. Um, and if not, then I'm going go to go to college. um, yeah and
1: uh, it worked out <laughs>
0: yeah it worked out girl it worked out you won a slam at 19 I kind of answered her own question so I think if if Fonseca does something maybe not win a slam but something along the lines of no I can compete with the top 100 right away I don't see a reason why he would need to go to college if that's this is going to be his chosen career unless he really really wanted that backup of, the career was cut short by an injury or something.
1: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see, because again, the the, sort of the life of tennis, if he decides to not go to school might be a long road because again, he's 300 in the world. He did get a wild card into the Santiago open, which is coming up now. Um, So maybe he can build some more points there, but if not, you know, he's playing qualifiers and it's not going to be direct entry into tournaments. And it's a lot of work to do. And he might do well by going to college maybe even for a year maybe he doesn't go you know for the whole 4 years um it'll be interesting to see again i think it's really easy to sort of be in this time where you have all these wins and you're beating the top players and so you're thinking well if i'm beating them already why not just go for it you know um yeah it'll be interesting to see to see how he what he chooses um but let's Wrap it up because this is a long one. We did a real, I mean, again, a lot happened in two weeks. What's coming up? What's coming up on the WTA?
0: Um, We're getting ready for the Sunshine Double as we all are. All of their tournaments are in the U.S. We've left the Middle East. We are now in the U.S. We have a WTA 500 in San Diego where Jessica Cagula is
1: She's back. back.
0: Yes, after a few months, a month off, she's the top seed in San Diego. She's going to be wanting to remind everyone that she's still here. And then you've got um, the 250 happening in Austin where Victoria Azarenka is the top seed. Lots of interesting players could kind have of scattered through both fields. Uh, but really, this is where, uh, particularly San Diego, I think is going to be used as the ideal prep for Indian Wells. Maybe Austin's close to Miami. Um, but um, yeah, I think... The, the WTA tour uh, is now in full sunshine double prep mode, as I have been since the start of this podcast.
1: It'll be interesting to see who's coaching Jessica now.
0: I, I genuinely don't know. I don't really pay that much attention to it. It's off-court stuff. We'll find out when he gets in the box. Or oh, it's a she. Hopefully it's a she. Hopefully it's a she.
1: I'm still waiting for Kim Clysters to just jump on Onza's team. Like, that's my hope and dream. But yes, hopefully it is a she. OK, on the men's side, on the ATP side, we are, yes, prepping for um, the Sunshine Double. So you'll see players, for example, um, Novak and Nadal have gone over. There's a really cute photo of them that they took. They, sh- they were on the same flight to um, to California. So there's a photo out there of both of them. So they're there. Um, Carlos Alvarez, who is still um, slightly, he's recovering from his um, ankle strain, Um, is going to Indian Wells. So he will start his prep. He's not going to be in any tournaments. And I believe neither is Sinner. Sinner is not going to be in in any tournaments either. I don't know if he's on his way or if he's still in Italy, um, but those two will not be in any tournaments. There is the Netflix Slam.
0: Yes, I was going to wonder if you were going to mention that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's an event that I'm very... So I'm going to go to a watch party, which basically, because of the time zone, it's happening in the middle of the afternoon, you know, but I'm going to a watch party with friends and just to experience what it is. At first, when it was first announced, it was just a match between Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz. And I, you know, I totally understand it. It's like the older generation, the newer generation, Clash, Netflix, Slam. It's really nice to see, all these sort of more traditional mainstream media get into tennis because that just tells you how popular tennis is becoming again. But there's going to be now, they've added some events. There's going to be an Ace Off, I think it's what it's called. Sam query it's gonna be in it, John Isner, Taylor Fritz, and Francis Tiafo. So this is a male-centric event. There, uh, as of right now that I know of, there are no WTA players that are um included in the Netflix glam. But I'll be interested to see how it is, you know, aired and shown. And and um yeah, Netflix is definitely doubling down on their on their tennis investment, it looks like. Um so that, that'll be happening just before Indian Wells but during this week coming up we have the men's tour is in Dubai for 500 and there's also the the tennis tournament in Acapulco, which is also another um, 500 event. And finally, the event that we've talked about that uh, Fonseca is going to be in is the event in Santiago, Chile. Who's playing? Well, I think we're seeing the return of Medvedev since the Australian Open, so it'll be nice to see how he's doing. Um, I know he is recovering from a foot thing um, that he had Um, at the Australian Open. So he'll be playing um, in Dubai. Rublev's playing in Dubai. Bublik, Andy Murray's playing in Dubai. So that's definitely where the big names are. It is a 500 event. On the other side, we also have another 500 event in in Acapulco where we have Zverev, we have Diminor, we have Nori, um, who we didn't really talk about Nori, Um, He was close to getting back to the finals of Rio, but his match that happened yesterday, the semis that happened yesterday were in the most insane conditions. I think we have a friend who is covering the tournament and the field temp was like 40, over 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And Nori looked like death playing tennis. And he stuck it out. He played the whole match. Hopefully, he's recovered enough for Acapulco, but don't be surprised if he pulls out because he really did look awful. Jack Draper, Tommy Paul, Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo, Chris Eubanks, Ben Shelton. I mean, you know, that's where the Americans decided to go. They all they're all in Acapulco this week in preparations for the Sunshine Double. The last tournament in Chile is mostly a Latin American affair. So, you know, we've got Juan Fonseca who got um a wild card. Uh Facundo Diaz Acosta is playing who won um the tournament last week. And yeah, those are the biggest the Garin is playing, I think Serundolo is playing too, possibly. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, definitely all the Latin Americans are staying in Latin America.
0: Essentially. If you're European, you're following Dubai. If you are American, yeah. you're following Acapulco. And if you're in South America, you're following Santiago. It's, it's basically how it's, it's going to run. It's perfect. I, Everyone
1: has their own little tournament. <laughs> I'm
0: going to say this now. Like, I am probably not going to watch any Acapulco because Acapulco is always on after midnight my time. Just always. Um. So, there is yeah. no. I have no way of watching it and staying sane. So, I will... Uh, have to miss it but I will probably catch some of some of Dubai in between what's going on with um, San Diego
1: and I think this is also some a note you don't I mean it's impossible we have a tennis podcast and we do not watch every single tennis match it's impossible pick which one's in your time zone and which one's more comfortable to your work schedule and your life schedule and all that and then just enjoy the tennis and if they're big matches that come up um in maybe a different time zone there's always a replay you know i i i just love tennis so i don't even mind if i know what the scores are i'll still watch a match you know but yeah that's all we've got for today nick we know what you're going to be watching i will mostly be watching um acapulco and santiago i think depending on the time zone stuff and of course san diego because um Got to throw in the nice WTA in the mix there. This this podcast has gone long, but that's just what it is. A lot happened this week. But I how did I forget? We have to say our players of the Fortnite because I know who mine is, but who's yours, Nick?
0: I know we kind of have an unspoken agreement not to pick our favorites, but I have to, for this time, Um for a mo- multiple of reasons, and that is Iga Um And the reason is... One, she performed the best across the two weeks. So fi- won, the, won Doha semi-final in Dubai. Her points yield over the two weeks was the biggest. But also her loss generated a lot of a conversation about expectations of her and uh, when she loses, uh, which we've kind of touched on a little bit. And kind of, you know, something that I kind of waded into is, so, well, hang on, why do we think she loses? What do you actually realistically think? Is it, is it realistic to say that she should win every match she plays? Which is what some people who like her, like myself, would prefer. But I'm a realist. And uh, I, I, I kind of started a conversation a little bit, which maybe it's worth picking up on another episode of when we go into seedings. And like what kind of set expectations that sets for fans, new and old of players. Because you see a number next to a name and you make an assumption of how they're gonna do. But for me yeah. so for me it's eager, not just because of her performance across the two weeks, but for the conversations that got started amongst the fandom after her loss to Sky.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I think that's why a lot of people do get ups- upset with upsets <laughs> because they're like, but their number, their number says they should win the tournament. And it doesn't always um work that way. I kind of will go unorthodox as well with this player of the Fortnite because I couldn't pick one. I just, I couldn't. So the teenagers are the players of the Fortnite. I'll let you have me. more than one. Mensik and, Fonse- <laughs> Mensik and Fonseca, just their breakout runs in those tournaments really um, were impressive and made me remember why I love the sport of tennis and just you know, discovering new people. Cause I mean, my personal story with tennis is I did get into sort of big three land. And when Roger started to fade and there was this scare of, wait a second, what happens when there's no Nadal, Roger, Novak to watch? Well, I was like, well, then tennis is over. Like tennis is done. (laughs) There's no more tennis. And, you know, kind of the pivot I've made to discovering new players and, you know, sort of following trajectories of maybe you see someone at a challenger and then you watch them fight and grow and go up the rankings and, and then they're up there in the rankings and can they sustain, can they keep it up? You know um, that has brought me a lot of joy in tennis. And so watching these teenagers like make their moves this week has been just so joyful and exciting. And I can't wait to see, you know, looking back when it's December and we look back on the year and say, well, what happened? Did they make it? Did they do it? Um, what could change? Or were they just, you know, a flash in the pan? I really hope not because their brand of tennis is so exciting. Um, so that's, those are my players of the Fortnite. Jaal Fonseca and Jakub Mense. Have to be them.
0: Have to be then. It would have been weird to pick anyone else.
1: Really weird. Um, Love you, sinner. Anyway, (sighs) we um we're done for the day. (laughs) We're done with this week. Stay tuned to our social medias, and I will be posting our guides on um, the Miami Open and Indian Wells. Hopefully I will see some people out there. If you see me at Miami, say hello, um, leave comments. I love interacting with all the people who um, message or reply to our posts on threads. We now have a Twitter X handle as well. So I'll put all of that in the description and, you know, keep watching tennis,
0: keep watching tennis. It's all brilliant every week. Don't try and watch all of it, but You can always watch some of it in a week. Have your your weekly dose. But yeah, we'll be picking this back up in a couple of weeks as Indian Wells just gets started. We'll be out in the desert. And where we're going in the desert, we don't need ropes.